Hey, Dan. Hey, Rob. How you doing today? I am awesome. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Just all right? Are we going to go there? Uh, we can if you want. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm getting over the COVID. The uh, COVID. Was very thankful not to be hit too hard by it, but uh, still coming off the back end of that. So Nice. Were you a bad bird or was this just community spread? I, you know, we've been trying to figure it out. Um, you know, I, I take my ritual trip to Starbucks that's masked and we pick up some food uh, that's always masked. And, you know, we had a baseball game you know, two <clears> weeks <throat> ago that, you know, was outside. So maybe that, but it's been hard to kind of pin down. So, but it gives you a whole new appreciation for everybody that's kind of gone through this horrible horrible process and lost loved ones. So it's yeah. real. Yeah. I'm, uh, I probably saved your life with the care package. Didn't I? You did. You did the, uh, the cheese its and the, uh, Campbell's chicken soup was, was, was spot on. So and hot cocoa. <laughs> you can't make me laugh today, <laughs> but uh, yes. Yeah, so thank you very much. Nope. Uh, no problem. So this is no longer about finding our intro. These are more about inspiring things that fit with the whole art of the possible theme that can inspire this conversation. Here's to the crazy ones, the rebels, the troublemakers, the ones who see things differently. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. So what is that, Rob? Uh, that's an Apple commercial from probably 84. Yeah, nice. Well done. That was the around the whole launch of the Mac. Yep. And one of just an epic, epic ad um, speaks to <clears> the crazy <throat> ones, which are the ones that are always thinking about the art of the possible and we're going to talk about a very special breed of crazy ones today. Yep. And that is actually software people. Yes. The scientific name is Softwaricus peopleus. <laughs> yes. I cannot pronounce that because uh, I have COVID. But um, so I had never heard that term before I met you. Um, so why don't when, you- when did I first share it with you? I think, you know, it was probably pretty early on. I think it's when I when uh, we were working together at Reached, and we were just kind of probably talking about team dynamics. And we will leave leave team dynamics at Reached uh, at that. Yep. But um, and just talking about like the dynamics between like kind of me and the marketing sales team, and then kind of um, you as you know CEO, and then the kind of like the CTO kind of developer team that we had, and really around how what what we talked about in with Jeff Lawson's book was ask your developer, like how do non software people interact and engage productively with software people? Um, that was probably the first time. So I, for this podcast, I took a refresher watch of a, probably my most often cited YouTube video clip. I think it was recorded in maybe 2013, published in 2014 um, by Jeff Wilson of USV. He was a funder of uh, Twilio early on. And it was a, a video recording of Jeff making a pr- 
pretty informal um, pitch at like a developer event. And that's where I learned the term software people. And uh, it so describes me that like I, I, I seriously quote it at least four times a month. And Jeff's, Jeff's, yeah. Jeff's notion was um, that a software people are not developers. The definition of a software person is someone who can see a problem and say, you know what, if we can get most of that into the domain of software, we can fix it. And that is the key. If you're going to, you know, be stuck in, oh, I've got sociology issues, or I've got political issues, or I've got hardware issues, or I've got time to market issues. Okay, those are, you gotta, you gotta find a way to cut those loose and make it a software problem. And I think software people do two things really well. They are able to say, let's just make the hardware problem go away. Let's just make the political problem go away. And then being, and then they're uh, capable of being very innovative in their software solution. When you say go away, do you mean solve it or mean like let's put it off to the side at this moment? Yes. Sometimes it gets solved, sometimes it gets put away. Uh, the two examples from uh, Jeff's presentation were the original iPhone. Well, how are you going to have, you know, what are you going to do with the buttons? Hmm. We're just not going to have buttons. Two things. One, then you don't have a inscrutable UI perpetually attached to the device, which makes it a software problem. So it's funny. I Right after the Apple commercial that we just played was <clears throat> Steve Jobs' was a 2007 iPhone launch video and i just watched that and like that's it it was fascinating watching that video what 14 years later right and being again having him you know showing the 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 nokia and the um blackberry and all the you know kind of the four main cell phone brands with the and he shows them all up there and goes here's the problem it's the bottom third and then they zoom right in on the keypads exactly exactly So think about another example. And again, none of this is original thought, certainly not originally expressed thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You knew that was coming. The um, Jeff makes a point about um, credit card point of sale processors. What, what, how many buttons is there on the (laughs) Stripe credit card processing machine? Zero. Yep. And then you look at the ones that are even still sold today. And the damn things look like label makers. There's so many buttons on them. And you're like, really? So it's just a fundamentally different approach. And and people can have this vision or this sight, if even if they're CEOs or marketing people, certainly programmers. But but some programmers, ironically, are not software people by this definition. Because they're, 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 they they get stuck in the problem and the re and, and the myriad ways you can't bring it exclusively into the domain of software. So, so drive out, drive that point home. So what's the difference between a developer or programmer and a software person? A software person um, will 
continue to think about a problem until it can be cast productively, which means it's a good problem to solve. There's lots of problems. Not all of them are worth solving. And in the process of refining their thinking about it, make it exclusively a software problem. And then, and then what? Like and, then have- it, and then it means that someone in Wyoming with access to the world's computing powder, power on AWS can begin to solve it. You know, we had this conversation with, I uh, forget who it was, and we talked about how can we decompose it? How can we decompose it? We can't solve ginormous problems all at once. We have to break them down. And part of that breaking them down is what are the component problems so that we can take nibbles at them and crowdsource the solution. But it also means how do we get the things that we can't solve for out of the problem? Again, things like hardware, sociology, politics, open source is a great example. It used to be that the capital cost of software stopped a lot of problems from being solved. And then Linus Torvalds decided, you know what, let's come up with Linux. Now there's no reason to spend $10,000 on a Sun Spark station back in the early days of the internet in order to have a, a website. Okay, so you just geeked out a little bit for the marketing folks, but that's important. So what tell like deep layman's terms for the last 30 seconds of what you just said. Layman's terms. Um, the first company I worked on was a career matcher finder. We had to spend $20,000 on one server. The, the, uh, the, the notion that you would run a company on a single server and not a cluster and all this kind of stuff is, is bizarre, but $20,000. And Which makes a fancy computer. A very fancy computer, fancy hardware. And at the same time, you could go to Best Buy or at the time Circuit City, get a Intel computer for 2000 bucks and plug it in, except it didn't run server-grade software. And so the Linux community came up and said, you don't need to buy a Spark, just buy a Dell and install BSD Unix on it. That What they said was, we can't, we're just going to remove expensive hardware from the problem, which didn't make it a hundred percent a software problem, but it meant it was practically exclusively a software problem. Well, it reduced my hardware cost from 20,000 20, to 2000. Exactly. Exactly. Can a marketing person be a software person? Yes. I think you're a software person. Software people, again, software people are people who think, how can I solve this with software? So you've got this notion of a, a postmortem app. Lots of things that could be could make that a problem. Uh, let's ignore those, or let's presume that the value will change the behavior. A lot of these are behavioral problems. I can't get someone to use my new software because their change is difficult. Yeah, let's make the software and see what happens. And that's the other thing is software people are quite not afraid to fail. They're, they hopefully the smarter ones don't fail big, but they fail small at ten thousand RPM. I think that's another key thing uh, for a software person. Back to that Apple Steve Jobs presentation of the the iPhone. He says at the end that if you are going to develop great software, you should build hardware. And that was kind of how they capped the introduction of the iPhone, right? 
And so I, which I found that to be a little curious maybe, or maybe it was self-serving or I don't know. Well, what's your, what's your take on that? I can see your face. You're a little, you're, you're, I know you love Steve Jobs. So you're, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, so that was still in the day and still true today where hardware manufacturers were in left field and operating system publishers were in right field. Do you remember having to scour the internet for the latest and greatest driver for your networking card or your sound card or blarf, right? It makes me want to throw up. Yeah. Steve Jobs was really about customer experience. He knew that if, if he was going to sell millions and millions of computers, he couldn't have hobbyists cracking them open, putting in the cheapest piece of crap sound card and because they're going to blame Mac. Just like when I was running Windows, how long ago, I can't even remember. And I was like, damn thing doesn't work. I wasn't thinking that it could have been the hardware having a substandard implementation. I was like, Windows sucks. And this so, is funny. I've always this, wondered, as you knowing you, who you are, who's this techie guy and software guy and all these other kinds of guys that we can't mention publicly on this on this podcast. Um, why, like, how are you not a windows guy? Because that's the, you know, in a non, non computer mindset, that's like, Oh, that's all where all the customizability is. Those are all the you geek out and you can, you know, put in a ton of Ram and a ton of this and a ton of that, and you can make it whatever you want it to be. And so. Yeah. But you just, you just, you just conflated hardware and software. Like I couldn't give less of a crap about hardware. Really? The software. Really? this is coming from the guy when I got my work from home budget was sending me like, Oh, get this, go get this mic and go For get computers. these computers. No, they're, and by the way, these are tools, not toys. The, <laughs> but when, you know, putting an extra gig of Ram or whatever in windows is much less interesting than what can you, how can you control the computer and max Unix underneath? And that's probably past our audience, but that's the secret sauce. The, the fact that next step is inside Max. Um, if it wasn't for that, Mac would probably have long been roadkill. Hmm. Because what, because why? Uh, because uh, it brought along a developer community. Um, it, it is a beautiful face on top of literally 30 or 40 years of, a continuous improvement in Unix operating systems and kernels. And um, it it uses a Unix philosophy. Maybe that might be another, that may sound really geeky, but it's actually very practical, probably another another podcast, which is not the Windows way. The Windows way is you have a mouse and you have an index finger and you spend your time descending and ascending these trees of menus until you find the correct, the, the correct box to click on. And I think, you know, Steve Jobs was brilliant to bring Next Step back with him when he came back to Apple. Mm. All right. So the other part of this conversation that I think is really important is ethics. Right? Ethics. Yes. So the ethics of a software person. And I don't know why I went so literally gloom and doom on this, but I, I started thinking of, um, 
Einstein and Oppenheimer, right? And the development of, you know, a, a really critical technology in the 20th century. And that was the atom bomb, right? And so the, you know, the pinnacle, a pinnacle of thought, not only in their fields, but of in civilization at the time, um, you know, Einstein at the end said, the release of the atomic power has changed everything except our way of thinking. The solution to this problem lies um, at the heart of mankind. If I only had known, I should have become a watchmaker. And then as Oppenheimer watched the mushroom cloud for the first time, he said, now I am become, uh, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, which is a, um, from the sacred text, the Bhagavad Gita. And um, so it speaks to software people, physicists, innovators, scientists, people with new ideas around trying to find the solution, right? But then what part of the responsibility around the ethics and the morality of that needs to be at play while you're going for that solution? You should have given me that question beforehand because that's pretty deep. The um, Whether Einstein invented it or not, the atom bomb was going to be invented. There, there, were, there was a race to it. There was a race in Germany, a race in Russia, and a race in the U.S. And so um, those, are, those are moving and provocative sound bites, but they miss the real issue. And that is, where's, you know, does anybody have a responsibility to tamp down innovation? And I would say, I would say no, because the same core research also has given us nuclear medicine. It's given us fission. It, you know, there's all kinds of good outcomes for taming the atom. The moral question of, you know, is the atom, you know, how do we think about the, Im, the morality of the atom bomb is the large writing version of how do we think about um, engineered releases of dopamine when you get a ding on your phone because you have a new Instagram. That exactly where we were going to go. Like, that, let's go, that's let's the same. It's the same. It's the same, sort of the same thing. It totally is the same thing. And that's, that's exactly where I was going with it in the sense of as you have these <clears throat> software people, whether they're marketers or technologists or whatever, going for these new innovations, you know, they are seeking most likely billion, you know, millions of billions of dollars, you know, in kind of creating the next great thing. Um, you know, I think, it, it speaks to a little bit of what Slaby said in, uh, in our conversation with him of like, you had to look at the morality that was guiding Zuckerberg and the Facebook team early on. Right. And what was the, what was their motivations of what they were going for? And that was a, that was a direct input and therefore resulted in the direct output of what became right. And so maybe a easier way to say that is like, the person's morals and ethics that are, you know, creating these things is really freaking important. It is, but I think, I think to think that um, if Zuckerberg had different morality, Facebook wouldn't evolve is inaccurate. The, uh, but would it have evolved? Diff would it have been different? No, because 
I th- two things. The internet, there's a, there was a fork in the road a long time ago in the internet. Are we going to pay for it or is it going to be free? I believe that we're better off with a free internet, even with all of the downside. Because if we, if there was a paywall, you know, Microsoft tried to hijack the internet really early on and come up with a proprietary development language. They were going to have servers and you don't need the internet. Use this. And I forget what it was called, but use this thing. And I, some of our customers are like, we're not going with the internet. We're going with Microsoft because no one ever got fired for doing Microsoft. And we're like, the internet's not a fad. Um, <laughs> turned out we were right, but we could have been wrong. The And so if it's free, you got to make money somehow. And there's a there's a cliche, if you're not paying for it, you're the product. So but, the, aren't there, it, but aren't there other iterations versus free, you know, free, not free? I mean, what are like, they? What are they? Because this is the thing that got me slightly fired up when we were I, talking to Michael. Oh. Is, yeah, there are. What are they? And and let's understand what the system is. Yeah. And so I think, well, and even when you, when we were talking with Jake the other day, um, you know, we talked about advertising versus subscription, right? And And so there's, I mean, there's different, you know, iterations of a lot of different things. And I think, but even more so less to the monetization of Facebook or Twitter, you know, or any of the other ones, it's like how they were literally programmed, like the algorithm, like the choices that they made to say what people are going to see. Yeah. But, but you, you, um, you just brushed off the sort of central tenant At, at some point. Facebook becomes an individual separate from Zuckerberg and everybody else. And its job is to make money. So if we're going to have, if this is going to be a class Bravo um, corp, that's one thing, but Facebook isn't. So how do you, if you're selling ads and you want to make more money, you have to make more ads and you can do that in two ways. You can put more ad avails on the page or have more people looking at the page. You believe in free will? Excuse me? Do you believe in free will? Yes. That's another whole nother conversation we're going to have. Oh, fantastic. Brian Green's Who, the- Who's Brian- Whose free will are we talking about? <laughs> free willies. Anyway, because the way you're saying, what the, but the, like the line of reasoning you, you go down to is it, like, it's just a race to the bottom on everything. Right. It, it I think, I think there's a lot more agency involved on like, when you look at, you know, I think the thought on how things are built and designed and programmed is, you know, well informed by someone's moral and ethical nature. Until but- they lose, until they lose practical control. Do you think that if um, Facebook if Facebook had faltered because they went, they took a moral high ground and said, half of y'all got to pay because we, we need to have this kind of revenue stream so that we're not addicted to ads that someone wouldn't have replaced it. So do you answer the, answer that question? Do you believe that the, that's a yes, no question just for the record. Do you believe that corporations are bad things then bad for bad for society? No. I don't think they're intrinsically. I think there are bad corporations, but they're not intrinsically bad. But if every corporation is going to end up having- I didn't to, say every corporation. 
the, the point I'm trying to make is I think leadership matters. And I think it leader, you know, who someone is as a leader and how they are formed, whether they, you know, I went to, I went to Notre Dame, which I know you love to make fun of, but I sat in a lot of philosophy courses and I, you know, sat in a lot of theology courses, which were, Notre Dame were even taught by mostly atheists and, you know, all of these, you know, all of those courses in the humanities, right? Notre Dame had an atheist teaching oh, theology it, class. Oh, no, most of the, when I was there, I don't know if it's still true. When I was there, most of the um, theology professors were atheists, which wow. I thought was pretty awesome. No, right? it's very awesome. It's just yeah. shocking, right? Yes. And so, um, and so, but I think, you know, in, I think this speaks now going to a bigger conversation around our education system right now. And it's in shambles with COVID and everything. And as we move towards more of this almost individualized learning where like, man, are we going to go to college anymore? Or I'm just going to go to edX and take courses from Harvard. Well, and MIT. Elon Musk would say that the college degree is the largest chunk of wasted money ever. Totally. And I hope he's absolutely right. So I don't have to waste my money on it for my boys. Um, uh, but, but then in which I think is exciting because you can really go after what you want, but nobody's going to take like ethics 101. No one's going to be reading Kant anymore. And that's really, really important. Yeah. That, so the, I, that you make a good point. Because as you sit there, as people sit there coming up with these ideas and, you know, coming up with the ideas, number one, and then, then two, implementing these ideas, like that's always, you know, that's part of who you are. So you're always thinking in those terms, right? You know, like, you know, and so um, it's not to say that there's not people out there that. But try, so I've been, I've been trying to figure out a way to say this and it just occurred to me, do a mental experiment. Rewind. Let's let's play Facebook in reverse. And tell me, you are the devil. You are the devil. <laughs> what is the what is the moment where Zuckerberg sold out? And I'm yeah, going to suggest sick. that it is only with hindsight that that is obvious. If there is a moment that you could cite. And my point is, these things have these things lose their owner's control. Even, yeah. even if you're a fifty-one percent owner of Facebook, you can't do what you want, or you'll be sued, and now you'll be zero percent owner of Facebook. So, corporations have uh, their own identity for a reason, because they, at some point, they do exceed any person's control, even the inventor. Just yeah. like Oppenheimer. He lost control of his invention, and now it's its own thing. For sometimes that's good, nuclear medicine. Sometimes it's bad, you know. So you don't have to answer this now. I'd be very curious uh, to hear from you. Like, who are software people or founders that you find to be very, like, morally with it? Right, like at the like good ethical solid folks. Um, over others. So I can tell you too, Jeff Lawson, and I forget his name right now, which is embarrassing, but the founder of a uh, canonical, which publishes Ubuntu. Hmm. What's Ubuntu? Uh, Ubuntu is a, a variant of Linux. And um, 
you know, super, super rich guys. I think he's been to orbit, uh, bought himself a ticket on a spaceship. Um, two, two solid people that are software people. Uh, my friend, did, did you think that was going to be, did you think there was going to be, that was going to be a rare, a rarity? No, I, no, no, no. I really just wanted to like, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on maybe less who they were, but more about like what made them, you know, made them tick. And I agree with Jeff. I mean, like not to be self-serving cause that's, we work at Twilio, but um, just how he, and actually I think the rest of leadership um, communicates makes decisions going, you know, just, it seems yeah, to be, but you know, we, we have an ambition to be a hundred billion dollar company and yet we've got yeah. .org and all that okay, is, all that true, is good, but not by any means necessary. I think that's the point. I don't think, I don't think Facebook, even in their heart of hearts are going to say, we're going to be a $500 billion company by any means necessary. This is your, your, these moral judgments are easy to make from outside because uh, so, no, they totally are. And I'm not taking, I'm taking it less from a attacking on, on like the Facebook side, uh, more from the standpoint of like, you know, be, hearing people that do make decisions where you're like, okay, that was not the easy decision to make. Mm-hmm. Here's, let me give you, let me ask you this question. Is a $500 toilet seat uh, morally acceptable? <laughs> no, seriously. This is you've heard that cliche, right? No, I have not. But it's you seriously have not heard of the five hundred dollar airplane toilet seat? No, I have not. Okay, so I don't fly the same airplanes that you fly on. No, apparently not. Um, (laughs) Well, that's for another time, since that analogy landed flat. Um. Well, cool. Well, I think we're at time. Um, This was good. I think um, this will probably be a recurring theme throughout the. throughout the podcasts. Uh, we have a few fun guests coming up. We'll have the founder of Verb soon. We'll have the CMO of Park Mobile coming on. Um, and See, Park Mobile, software person. Totally. Take right. the whole like parking garage, it's gone. Yeah. Parking garage is not important to their business. Yeah. It's essential and yet irrelevant, which is crazy. Yeah, love it. Love it. I can't wait to talk to him. All right, my friend. See you later. Feel better. Bye.